Let's go ahead and get started this uh, morning. We are on point 13 of our study of worship, and uh, we've kind of had some interjections in the in the middle of it, uh, special for Father's Day, special for Fourth of July, and so that's kind of gotten. I was off a couple of weeks, so anyway, we're going to try to to um, get back into it. But worship is something that. It's interesting. We need to be taught about it because we need a, a doctrinal perspective, but doing it is a far more value than just studying it. So worship is something that we do. We often think of worship in terms of music and what type of music is it, and we it's limited. In many churches, the whole concept of worship gets limited to what kind of music do you do. Now, music is obviously a part of it lifting up praise to the Lord, but the scripture tells us to worship, and worship is a lot more than just singing or the music that is involved. Um, I'd like to read, um, this is a a little note from an individual in Africa, that's as close as I'll get it. This is recent, uh, these, a recent report of uh, persecution and what they face on a daily basis there. And uh, actually, before I read this, let's pray. Okay, let's pray. Get ready. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the life that you have given us. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you set in front of us to be able to honor you in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. Father, I pray for the strength and stamina and that we realize we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, Father, this morning, as we get encouraged in the faith, I pray, Father, that you would do just that through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. From a young lady that says, I'm a pastor's wife been in ministry four years. Our church was growing. One Sunday during worship, the church was surrounded by Muslims who were threatening us. The local Muslim council told them to leave, and they won't allow a church to be there. They told us they would kill my husband and our family if we did not move the church. The attack was planned for a specific Sunday, but a Muslim who was a friend of the family came and told us of the planned attack. We went ahead and went to church. But the attack didn't happen. The next Sunday, the Muslims came with machetes, axes, and stones. They destroyed the church, including the metal roof. And I was in the church praying while this was going on, asking God for protection. We were even told by the Islamic leader of the village, we will not allow you to worship. If you do, you will be killed. We went to the police to report these attacks and threats, but the commanding officer was a Muslim, and he said, if the chief says go, you need to go. They threatened my husband that they would kill him if he didn't leave. We didn't leave, but rather we went to the chief and the council to tell them we had forgiven them for what they had done. During the night, the Muslims came out to our home and broke into the kitchen to light it on fire. Fortunately, a neighbor saw the fire before it got out of control. Local Muslims went to the police to report that my husband had raped a young girl, which was a lie. 
He was arrested, and it took a lot of time and effort before he was finally declared innocent. Even with this persecution, we continue to stay there. The Muslim leader has been transferred to another place. The replacement is more tolerant. He now allows us to worship during the day, but we cannot worship at night or use instruments. We now have some Muslims coming to us, though, asking for help. Now, it's interesting the way people handle things. But what we do as we lift up a joyful noise uh, is, is really special. Because in a lot of places around the world, it will get you hurt or killed. Uh, we went to, on a trip to Vietnam in 97. In 97, we took a trip with uh, 20 kids. We call them kids. They, they look like kids to us. They were all under 30, so they were kids to us. And we went to a place where we had a conference that lasted three or four days. We rented the entire floor of a hotel, and uh, we met on that hotel. And every one of the people that were uh, there had already done some jail time for worshiping too loud, basically. Because if you worship loud enough that your neighbors hear it, it's too loud, and you can get thrown in jail. Now, that was Vietnam in 1997. And there's not been a whole lot that has changed since then. <clears throat> we have a, really such a privilege here. And how many people in this country would rather be somewhere else on Sunday or any day than to be with the Lord in learning His Word or serving Him or lifting up praise and worship? Worship is, a, is not just about music. Although that's an important part of it. You worship the Lord whenever you open up his word, recognizing him as the author of scripture, the ultimate author. In that sense, you're worshiping the Lord whenever you do that. Whenever you go in front of the throne of grace and offer a prayer for yourself, for your family, for others, an intercessory prayer, that's worship. Because you're recognizing him as the God of the universe. There are different ways to worship. So sometimes we view it with such a with such a limited way. I had someone call me a long time ago and said, "We want to know what type of worship music you use. Where did it come from? Because there's several out there, Hillsong, Maranatha, and all this, and they had a specific group that they wanted a church that only used that those worship songs in order to worship. Because somewhere along the line, they thought that's the only way you could worship." And I said, well, I think we've got a couple of songs we do from time to time from that group, but no, we don't do any one in particular. No, no particular worship song. We've got old music that we do from time to time. I call it old music, four or five hundred years old. But it was contemporary Christian music at its time. <laughs> when you think of it, it just stuck around. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, a mighty fortress, some great songs, praise to the Lord the Almighty, some great songs that we do from time to time. And these are these are wonderful songs, but then we do some of the more modern ones. And to us, modern is less than 30 years old. So, <laughs> and, and they've already cycled through all the con contemporary Christian music stations, and they're on the oldie but goodie contemporary uh, Christian music stations. You have to look to find them. Some of them are good, some of them are not. Some of them I prefer, some of them I don't prefer. 
7-Eleven uh, music is not that which they play in 7-Elevens, if you will, but seven words sung 11 times. And that kind of gets old and redundant. And some of the songs are that, even some of the old hymns are kind of redundant in the way that, that they are done. But it's the, the, what's going on inside of our soul is what the important thing is. I will sing of my Redeemer. Are we just singing the words? Or is this, that? are we singing to him? Do we sing for him or to him? How do we sing? I mean, these are elements of worship. Now, worship, if, you, if, you, if a person wants to worship God, they're going to find the Messiah. If they really want to worship the God, then they'll eventually figure it out. I find that there's a lot of different kinds of worship, and some of it is not, not American-made. It doesn't mean American worship is right and everything else is wrong. It doesn't mean African worship is right and everything else is wrong. Because the Lord looks on the heart more than on the outside. He is more interested in what's going on in the souls of men. Just like when people brought a sacrifice of a bull or a lamb or a goat. He wanted to know more what's going on on the inside than about that outside. Because that too was a form of worship whenever it was, whenever it was practiced. Now in Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> I love this passage. Uh, it's one of these passages that I think evangelist needs to go through and extract the principles from. In fact, I'm getting books together to put up on the internet of the, my, all my teaching notes, trying to make them look nice and pretty, correcting goofs, because I, uh, I do not write scripture. Yeah, and I'm sure most of you know that by now, uh, because the stuff I write's often got problems grammatically in it. Sometimes it's got some things that need to be better said. Sometimes I look at things and I go, why did I say that back 20 years ago? And praise the Lord, I don't think it took anybody down the path to hell in the process. But it was, <clears throat> when you look at it, and this is about where I am correcting the book of Acts in Acts chapter 8. And so it's neat going back through this for me because it's a reminder I've already been through the book three or four times, all the way through the book of Acts, and I still have some more work to do to get it ready, just to get it, uh, what I say, would say is presentable. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, 8.26, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's a desert road. And he arose and he went. Now look what Philip did. Philip was one of the first deacons picked in Acts chapter 6. Philip had the gift of evangelism. So what did God use that deacon for? To go evangelize. So what was he doing? He was listening and waiting for the Lord as the early church. A messenger from the Lord said, Arise, get up, and go south. To the road that extends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And what did he do? He arose and went. So many people pray for a sign from the Lord that when it comes, they don't do anything. Well, give us a sign. Give us. How about, behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? Which God spoke from heaven, and the multitude said they thought it had thundered. Anyway, he says, there was, behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, see, this, this guy was an important one. 
right? He was a dignitary, if you will. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Huh. Sound like a Jew that got down there. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So while he went to Jerusalem, he somehow secured the Isaiah scroll, or at least a portion of it. He had that, and he's reading it. Now, if you just got hold of a scroll or part of the Bible in the first century, you had a valuable treasure, a valuable treasure. You know, you find it interesting that some people collect uh, old Bibles, and it is, it is a money-making thing. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but I know 20 years ago, I know a collector that was from Korea, and he collected old Bible, uh, Christian, he collected old Bibles, and they would, they would sell for three, four, five dollars a page, easily, and that's what they would, they would bring, depending on how old it was, and the condition, and all that, here's this guy, is reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, what did I tell you about evangelism, <laughs> you show up, you follow directions, and the Lord keeps directing you. You don't follow the direction, the, dir- the guidance leaves. But you start it, because that's what walking by faith is. We want to see the end from the beginning. That's not the way God works. Take a step here, take a step here, take a step here. I'll show you. Kind of like Abraham. Go forth from the land of your relatives. Where? To a place I'll show you. That's what... Walking by faith is all about. And he said, he came up to the the eunuch and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How could I? (laughs) Unless somebody guides me. So here's the Ethiopian eunuch. He is reading the scripture, but he doesn't understand it. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. He was a dignitary. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else. And say, this is a guy reading the scripture, not just to say he read it, he's reading it to understand it. And there's things he didn't understand. And so, who was provided? Philip. That's the way God does things. It's amazing whenever you make yourself available and something like this comes up and you find out people say, well, I've been praying for this for for a long time. I want to know. We're looking at things about uh, testimonies from people that somehow got a Bible placed in their hands over this past year. And they've been praying for a Bible, many of them, for years. And they didn't know one was coming. And then, suddenly, guess what? Their pastor hands them a Bible that had been provided for them. Many of whom are so poor that a Bible is a week's wages. And if they pull that week's wages out, then their family doesn't eat for a week. And so a lot of them do without a Bible because they don't have the money to buy one. And you say, how could anybody be that poor? They're all over the world. All over the world. There are probably 
uh, 500 million, no exaggeration, people around the world today that need a Bible. Now that's that's the uh, some would say it's a black hole. No, I say it's a well. You know that is filled up with the Word of God and people get nourished from it. And Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. Now see, did the eunuch want to find the Lord? Did he want to be able to worship honestly, the one that is deserving of worship? Yeah. What did, the, what did God do? He provided him. We've seen the same thing happen, village after village. When somebody shows up, and when you hear somebody say, well, this is the same thing missionaries 50 years ago taught us. You go, that's neat. And so they say, somehow I got lost. It got lost. Either the books got worn out or whatever. It got lost. And then to be able to encourage them and say, God is still here. The Word is still here. Jesus is still here. And one day he's coming back. I mean, that is a great encouragement. But that is only done when people make themselves available to be used of God. Now, love functioning in a local church convicts the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 14, 25 is the, the verse that goes with that. It says, if therefore, this 1 Corinthians 14, if you go through Corinth, in chapter 12, it picks up with spiritual gifts. And you can look at Corinth and go, if, they could mess, if it could be messed up, they did. Chapter 12, they were arguing over who had what gift. Okay? It was a, here is a grace gift from God, and, well, I've got the gift of languages. Well, I have the gift of discerning of spirits. Well, I have the gift of prophecy. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by, oh, but I was baptized by Christ. You see kind of what's going on in Corinth? And Paul is writing this thing because they just run Apollos off who was their pastor. And Paul is trying to talk him into going back, chapter 16, and he said, no, I'm not going back. That bunch of losers. <laughs> well, Paul is writing this because he's not giving up on them. And sometimes people just need somebody to not give up on them. So he is writing this because chapter 12, he's explained the gifts are supposed to work together. For the benefit of the whole body. That's why we have different gifts. Chapter 13, no matter what your gift is, it ought to function in love. If it's not functioning in love, it's functioning incorrectly. Love is to be the driving force behind the gift of giving. You don't give to be seen. Behind the gift of mercy, you do it surely to love your neighbor. You don't do it to draw attention to yourself. Behind the gift of encouragement, some people are great encouragers, but the when you step over that line and say, and you've encouraged somebody and your chest swells up with pride, then Satan won that battle, didn't he? It's still encouragement to them. That doesn't change. But how, do, how, how is it viewed as a reward for you? You know, uh, the gift of pastor, the gift of teacher, the gift of administration, the gift of leadership, the various gifts within the church. All of them need to function with love. A love of God and a love of one another. And if you don't get those right, the rest, the rest don't, don't matter. That's chapter 13. Chapter 14 dealt with church government. Because if you can mess it up, they messed it up. So, what did Paul say in verse 
4 and 5. Let all things, okay, all things be done for, fill in the blank, edification. Because he'd said earlier, some speak in languages to edify themselves. They think, well, that's just fine and dandy. I'm gonna, but the, the objective of the church is to edify everybody that comes. That's why languages was given. How many churches are in a square mile here? Right around us. I looked it up one day and it was, I, I, the number did not stay with me. But, I mean, you can look right across the street, there's one. You can go up uh, uh, Overholster Road here, and there's two, three, four on Overholster Road. Probably in a square mile, well, we got 10, 12, 15 churches, 20, maybe more. Then I don't know how many churches we have. How many churches were in Corinth? One. How many were in Ephesus? One. How about Philippi? One. Colossae? One. How many churches were in these cities? One. So when a person is traveling to Jerusalem or whatever they're doing, and they are going to look for the church in that city, what if they don't speak that language? They were left out. Right? People were speaking in languages to show off. Which says that even if you have a spiritual gift, you can use it for works of the flesh. It's all about using it for the works of the Spirit. See, so here is the, uh, they stop in at the church and they hear somebody talking. Have you ever been to a Spanish-speaking church and you don't speak Spanish? It can be one of the most dull, boring things you've ever been to in your life. Why? Because you don't speak the language. Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody whispering in your ears that this is what they're saying? Okay, especially if they're talking about you. It'd be nice to know what they're saying. That's what the gift was for. Because there could be people from three or four or five different areas spoke different languages or dialects that did not understand what the preacher was saying. So they had that gift functioning in the early church for what purpose? Edification of the body of Christ. Let all things be done for edification. Now Paul is writing in verse 25 or 23, if the whole church assembled together and everybody spoke in languages. Okay? You got 30 people there and there are 30 different languages going on. And ungifted men or unbelievers entered. Now here he's drawing them back to what is important and that's the people that come in to visit ungifted means that they're or unbelievers they could be unbelievers they could be uh, people who've not uh, who did not know that Jesus Messiah had come and that 20 years into the church age there were still those people floating around disciples of John whatever unbelief an under or an ungifted man enters he says uh, will they not say you are mad now, sadly, I've got a personal testimony about this. As I grew up in a church in which occasionally there would be speaking in languages. They call it speaking in tongues, and they spoke in tongues. I questioned it from the time I was a kid, which I found out real quick you don't say openly, or you get slapped down by mama, that you just go with the flow, and I couldn't understand how some person could say the same words 
every time they spoke in languages, and the interpretation was always different. I just could not see that. I'm so I asked a question about that, and I was told, that's a matter of the Holy Spirit, and you better shut up. So I did for a long time until I started learning about such things. I took friends there to church. Things usually went well because the music was always good. It was a lot of fun. And then somebody would start with this. And I can guarantee you some of the looks I got were from another planet almost. They thought we had... And so will they not say you are mad? Because they all started praying openly. No problem with everybody praying out loud at the same time. Nope, that's, that get, turns into a legalism real fast. But no, no problem with that. But some were praying out loud in these languages. And I'm going. And they're looking at me. And uh, one of my friends who was a character. We brought another one along. And they made the altar call. And he grabs this guy by the arm and said let's go down to the altar <laughs> and this guy's response get your hands off me <laughs> says will they not say you're mad yes they will if all prophesy though that was a different gift in the early church if all prophesy is a rhetorical question we know it's rhetorical because he's just said in earlier chapters not all speak in tongues, not all prophesy, not all do these things, see? Because the gifts are evenly distributed with, or, or distributed within the body, sovereignly by, by the Holy Spirit. And he says, and, and an unbelief, if all prophesy, if all were to do that, which is viewed as the highest gift in that early church, he said, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He's called account by all. In other words, if there were things going on, because prophecy in the early church was not this preaching like it's been viewed as now. Prophecy inherently in the word. Fami is part of this fessi. Prop means before. Fessi comes from fami, which means to enlighten. To enlighten beforehand is what the word inherently means. And don't need to try and turn it into a uh, word with a different definition which a lot of people have tried to do today but it means to say beforehand so what happens you walk into a church and nobody knows you and they start telling you everything you ever did like Jesus did with the woman at the well they know who you are convicted by all if everybody had the gift of prophecy see this is the argument that Paul is making and he says he's called to account by all he says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Can you imagine walking into a church and everybody knows you? <laughs> Maybe better than you know you? Now, that'd be scary, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you want to know the power? Maybe that brought that about. And so he will fall on his face and worship God. See what happens when it's used correctly? Declaring that God is certainly among you. That's what it says. Love, when it functions in a local church, convicts the unbeliever because then it is being guided by love. And that's what's important. It's not the, the show-off stuff. A lot of people come to watch the, watch the show. But what happens when they leave? Now, 
one who is genuinely awed by God, one who is genuinely awed by God will be awed by Jesus. So if you claim to be awed by who God is when you finally hear about who Jesus is, you'll be awed by him. He is God in the flesh. But a lot of people think, like Thomas Samuel, one of our missionaries on the board, said there's still a lot of people in his country that think that, that Jesus is a new brand of cigarette. They are clueless as to who he is. And so do they need to know? Absolutely, they, they need to know. But if they're awed by God and they see one God and they got that God identified, they're going to be awed by who Jesus is. Acts 17, the example Paul gives us, they had traveled from Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks. That little thing that gets slipped in there in the book of Acts, God-fearing Greeks. The Greeks had figured out some had realized there's only one God and a number of the leading women. So when he went into Thessalonica, what happened? There were people who were God-fearing, awed by God. And when they heard Jesus, some of them went, yeah, he's, he's the one. He suffered, was rose, died and was rose again. Acts 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, within him as he's beholding a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles <laughs> and in the marketplace every day with anyone that happened to be present. Same thing in Acts 18. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. He said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. <coughs> and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. There were some who had a genuine respect for God. And that could be a big part of what was going on in Jewish mind and thought back then. A lot of them were looking for a human Messiah to throw out the Romans. Not one to save them from their sins. And that's firmly why I believe, I believe firmly that that's why, <clears throat> a big part of why they missed, missed the Lord. Because he was the wrong kind of Messiah. They felt like that they had, that they got saved by keeping the law. 
offering their sacrifices, that the sacrifices really did the atonement part of paying for their sins. So why do you need a Messiah to pay for sins? If we can offer up these sacrifices, it was unneeded. A Messiah was unneeded. But what we do need is out from under the hand of Rome. And that was the common thinking of the day. Now, worshiping him is going to be a privilege of eternity. You know, sometimes I wonder about the Holy Spirit. I don't wonder about him. I'm fascinated by him. Because look where we're quoting from, Revelation. Look where where, uh, Kelvin quoted from this morning, Revelation 19. And I'm thinking, that's in the notes today. Now, he does get the notes early. But usually he picks out the music first (laughs) before he gets the notes. So what you find is the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work. Doing doing things in order to get music, hopefully, and message somewhat close together. Now think about that. Worshiping the Lord is going to be a privilege of eternity. We are not forced to worship Him in eternity. But it's a privilege that we have for all of eternity. So what we do now is just practice. If we look at what we do now, we're just warming up the choir for eternity. There's a song, a contemporary Christian song, called Concert of the Age, which is a great song. And it talks about the great I Am takes center stage. What does he do? Leads the choir. (laughs) Where's it come from? Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits to him to him on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him and will cast their crowns and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Because you did create all things, and because of you and your will, they existed and were created. That's part of the heavenly chorus. Revelation 4 and 5. 2 and 3 see as the church age, the picture of the church. 4 and 5 is the scene in heaven right after the rapture. That's the sequence of where it, where it fits into. So Revelate, what happens when we get there? We're going to join a heavenly chorus. A myriads and myriads of angels. A myriads 10,000. A plural is 20,000. 20,000 times 20,000 is what? 40 million? We calculate, I calculate it wrong. I shouldn't. 40 million and 24. We know there's going to be the 24 elders, the four living creatures. So there'll be 40 million and 28 that we know about when we get there. That's not counting us. Now that's going to be a great chorus. That's going to be a great chorus. Revelation 5, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And everything that's in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be blessing and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see what worship is now? It's designed to just be a warm-up. We're just tuning up for eternity. How long are they going to sing? I'm wondering about this because when we first started Trinity Bible Church a long time ago, we did two songs. That's what we did. And whenever we added the third song, I actually had some deacons say, is all we're going to do sing? I said, no, it's not all we're going to do, but we're going to sing more than we do. <laughs> so we added two songs. We actually got a what we sang a mighty fortress and oh holy 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 and we actually added more songs into our repertoire and then when we added the fourth song you could have took me out and charged me with blasphemy <clears throat> for messing up the structure that we had put into place and a contemporary song oh my gosh where did you hear that we did a song when majesty worship is majesty you know, that song was written by a charismatic preacher. I told people that 30 years ago. They didn't like that. But it's a really good song, isn't it? Worship His Majesty to Jesus. Be all honor, glory, and praise. That's the song that is there. So, <clears throat> yeah, we can, we can sing that. Revelation 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation, the salvation, is to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine the whole group saying, Amen? I wonder how many songs we'll sing in heaven. <laughs> Four songs? <laughs> okay, we got Held up in four. And I'm sure that's just because we do. Did four songs today. But <clears throat> how many songs? I don't know. How long will we sing? I don't know. We won't get tired. We'll be in new bodies. I mean you start thinking about this. Because a lot of us like to sing. Are just not very good at it. And so sometimes our throats get raw and dry. Um, especially if we sing. Glow. You, you know that song. You can only do that once a year. Because that thing will just rip your vocal cords right out of right out of your throat, and so. But can you imagine? You can sing that and not tear that new body up, and you could actually sing it and hit the high notes. Wow, that'll that'll be pretty neat. Part of worshiping Him is godliness, personal godliness. It's a privilege of eternity. So we really want to worship Him. And we want to come into the presence of the Lord. We want to get the full benefit, experience of worship. See, because He is worthy. Is that question settled in our mind? I hope so, because that's where it starts. If He's not worthy of worship, then what you're doing is hypocritical. 
is of no use. You're going to worship him just for the sake of, of trying to worship? Or do you want to go in front of him because he is worthy of that worship? Now, part of true worship is personal godliness. See, this is not normally seen as worship. And in our country where the whole issue of morality, ethics, religion, biology, sociology, psychology. When you look at the, the ten things we looked at last week, you look at that where it's been so turned upside down, personal godliness is not something that, that people think highly of in our country. It comes from the word Eusebia. Eusebia, the U on the front of it means well. Sabia means to all. So the word groups for godliness comes from a root meaning of to all, A-W-E, well. Okay, You have the right sense of awe about the Almighty. We used to call him the Almighty. People don't usually call him that anymore. The Almighty is a word comes from El Shaddai. Where does, where does it come from out of the Hebrew? Uh, El Shaddai. Shaddai means the omnipotent God of many breasts. What? What? What the Hebrew means. I just report it. I don't make it up. And so here is, what does he say? He is the God of blessing. See, because the many breasts are referring to blessings when you look at the Hebrew cultures and the idioms that were there. Who is he? And so, being a little bit puritanical in the way they did the translations and some things, they go, God Almighty, we're not going to call him the, the God with many breasts, the, the God who blesses. They could have translated it better. But <clears throat> to awe him well, one can't be godlike without being in contact with God. How are you going to be godlike, godly, unless you have a contact with him? We looked at 1 John and went through there. We went through the five C's, if you will, about relationship. Relationship starts with contact. You don't have relationship if you don't have contact. So it starts with God with contact. And then you go back and forth to confession, being willing to openly admit and to speak the truth and love to one another. Communication is the next C that is found there. Being able to communicate. You find it in marriages. You find it in, in work relationships. Contact is where it starts. Honestly, looking at yourself and not trying to elevate yourself above others. Communication. Back and forth. I study his word, I pray. I study his word, I pray. Correction. Wherever it's needed. And then the consummation of the fellowship. When we get this new body and can't mess it up anymore. So <clears throat> you can't be godlike without being in contact with God. 2 Timothy 3.5, verse of the last days, says in the last days they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these, is what Paul writes to Timothy. They hold to a form of it. It looks like it. People think it will be. They've been deceived into thinking that, that it is a form of godliness. People, think all kinds of stuff. Well, we can do fasting. Okay? 
someone wants to fast for the purpose of praying, for communion with God, that's fine to do. It's not prohibited. It's not commanded by law either because we're not under the Mosaic law. So we, we don't have to, but if we do, we can choose to out of our freedom and do that. But don't try to fast to manipulate God because that isn't going to work at all, at all. But there are things that are seem to be, some people get involved in some of those things, like <clears throat> various observances that go on throughout the, the year. And they, they're all about, uh, what was it? About, I heard somebody gave up beer for Lent. And went to wine. <laughs> I'm going, Wait a minute. Time out. <laughs> just didn't quite get that one, did you? See, we can figure out, bring a lawyer with you, and you can figure out all kinds of ways to get out around certain things. But it looks like the real thing. But it's not. So how are we going to really be godly? And where is real worship going to occur? without the contact and an honest contact with him. Contact with God is exemplified by the humanity of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Who are they talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. The common confession. Great is the mystery of what? Godliness. Godliness is all about Jesus Christ. So you can think all you want to think that there is one God, and his name is Jehovah Elohim. You can you can say that, you can profess it, and you can do everything else, but you leave Jesus out of it. You just missed it. You just missed it. It's exemplified by the humanity of Christ. So how are you going to be godly if you don't know who the author of godliness is? And don't care. It's not going to happen. We find 80% of the people, latest um, Gallup poll, that uh, 80% of the, only 80% of the people now believe in God. And you start analyzing that. That's been within the last couple of weeks. Made a lot of news media. Yeah, and, and they 80% of the people, I'm thinking, boy, that's a high number. And then you stop and think, how did they do this? Do you believe God exists? Yeah. What about his son? The number goes way down after that. We've got a third of the people in the country that are functional, that are agnostics. Admitted agnostics. So they might answer the, the poll. Yes, I believe in God. But there's no room in the poll to go, but. It's a yes or no thing. That's the way they do these data dumps and try to gather these statistics so they can analyze it. <coughs> but who who is God? I, I'm constantly reminded of James 2. says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Remember, the demons knew who Jesus was when he walked on this earth. Have you come to throw us in the pit before the time? They knew what the plan was. They knew what their fate was. They knew those things. Have you, have you, what are you doing here now? Oh, Jesus, why are you tormenting us? Stop tormenting us. 
they knew why he was here. But it, it is all about the humanity of Christ. And if you don't accept the humanity of Christ as your Messiah, then all you've got is an empty thought about God. And probably are not talking about the God of the universe. So that poll that says 80% of Americans believe there is a God, I would like to see deeper into it. In fact, I've got the data. Danny sent me the data that digs a lot deeper into it. And it's amazing the demographics of who it is. But I'll tell you something. The young folks are the ones that are kicking God to the curb, if you will. The sad thing is, he is going to reveal himself, and he's already won this battle. It'd be much better to be on the winning side. Now, <clears throat> godliness requires self-discipline. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, Having nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, a sexist might say. That's what Paul said. I'm just quoting. Not that old men can't get involved in them. Not that old men don't promote them. <laughs> okay, it has nothing to do with that. He's just saying in that culture they were living in, usually where these things spread around was in the gossip circles uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the women. And he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Having the proper respect for the Almighty. That's what he's talking about. Godliness requires self-discipline. Godliness is highly profitable. Now some people like to see the profitability of being godly turned into gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what they're looking for. First Timothy 6, verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus... The, the, the sentence structure here, sound words, and apposition, definition, those of our Lord Jesus, Messiah, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. He's conceited. He understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. Now, godliness is highly profitable, but it has nothing to do with the money. I, I still see people that think, well, obviously that person is successful spiritually because God has blessed them with wealth. Well, let's see. David was wealthy. Uh, he had some pitfalls. But why was he successful? Because he was a man after God's own heart. That's why he was successful. Abraham was wealthy physically, but he was wealthy spiritually. And so was Isaac and Jacob eventually. Took them a while to realize it. But see, was, did God make them wealthy because of all of their um, so-called godliness? It got passed on to Isaac. He multiplied it. It got passed on to Jacob. He multiplied it. That's what happened. God blessed them. But what about the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head? So you don't measure godliness by wealth. Can't do it. What about Barnabas? Just covered the passage and Acts went through it again. That Barnabas sold what he had and came and laid it at the disciples' feet. 
Nowhere in Scripture does it say anything about Barnabas's fortunes being restored. Nowhere. You think they were restored? I don't think he wanted them. You say, why would he not want them? He had other work to do. That would have kept him occupied with other things other than his ministry, which was a ministry of encouragement. With food and shelter, we shall be satisfied. He'd learned to be content just like Paul did. And it didn't. It was not a magic formula where you give 10% to God and he gives you 100% back. It's not a magic formula, yet that's being promoted by televangelists all over the world. And it's just flat wrong. Godliness is not a means to material gain. From 1 Timothy 6, verse 5 and 6. Interesting about all these writings of godliness in Timothy, isn't it? Constant friction, he said, between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Like some that hold their Bibles high on Sunday morning and say, I believe every word of this book. And then they put the book down and they don't ever look at it again. How like Gary Horton said he used to he used to get out of bed and run around the block every morning. Just to warm up. And he said then he'd put the block back under the bed and go back to bed. <laughs> Sometimes that's the way we way we think. It's not a means of material gain. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. When we're godly, that means we know God's in charge of all this. We know God will not let his, his people uh, go hungry. We know that he will take care and that he will provide. I can't tell you the number of people that I read testimonies from that come through and they talk about they, they couldn't afford a Bible. And they were so thankful for it because basically they had to get up, go work for their day wages because in a lot of places the real poor are paid by the day. If you don't show up, you don't get anything. And what do they get? Uh, one lady said that she managed to work. Uh, she had to wait in line. She had to take off a half a day's work to go get her Bible. Okay, because the way things worked out in the society and culture, she had to leave work for half a day. And she said, so that basically meant I had this much less food to eat that day. But her response was, she had God's food. There's a clear warning against omitting the importance of godliness in worship. A clear warning. And godliness is not a means of material gain. It's Godliness is supposed to be a major pursuit of life. Sounds like 1 Timothy 6 could be called the pursuit of godliness. Could it not? We've almost read that chapter so far. Flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. <clears throat> and Peter's got to get in on this. You kind of expect it. <clears throat> Took him a while to figure out what was important. But once he did, he got in on it. The Lord's granted us what we need to be godly. 
It's not that we have to go looking for it. It's more realize what you got. It's kind of like when you get ready to work on a project <clears throat> and you do an inventory. And especially with me, I have tools of, if I don't have it and I see it, I want it. It's an obsession, I confess it. But I still like to have those tools that I might need one time in my life and they are on hand if I can find them. <clears throat> anyway, I want to build something. Well, do I have the wood to build it? I want to build a, a stool or a table. Do I have the wood to build it? Do I have the saw? Do I know where it's found? You put this thing all together and you find out, I don't need to go to Lowe's again. I've got it. Okay, Second Peter 1. Here we are. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Go ahead and turn there if you're not there. and Let me get a drink to <clears throat> finish this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Don't you just love that word? Everything pertaining to to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust now think about that just a second because isn't that godliness if you can get rid of the things of the world over here and replace them with the divine nature, isn't that where we're supposed to be? Sovereign. God is sovereign. Well, I can't be sovereign, but I know who is. Okay, He's made me sovereign in that he gave me sovereignty over my decisions. So did my decisions honor him or, or dishonor him? Simple test. What are my decisions doing? That's sovereignty. Righteousness, I couldn't achieve it, he gave it to me. Justice, was it fair what he gave me? Yeah, it was paid for by somebody else. Eternal life, okay? Isn't that the pearl of great, great price? And you have it already? What about uh, love? For God so loved the world. How do we get this thing to begin with? Who moved inside of us? The Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, but... Isn't that a partaker of the divine nature? Omniscience. Omniscience says, I'm smart enough to know I don't know everything. Okay? And hopefully humble enough to admit it. <laughs> because sometimes we're not humble enough to admit that we, you know, we know the right words to say. Oh, I don't know everything. But is that really what we think? <laughs> is that really what drives us? Omnipotence. Oh, there's a power inside of us. That was there when the world was created. It's called the Holy Spirit. He did not give us control over him. What he did was give us resources through him. Being filled with all the fullness of God. Means the Holy Spirit can work in and through our lives. Omnipresence. He'll never leave me or forsake me. He's with me forever. How about unchanging? Is our life bouncing to and fro like a yo-yo? Back and forth? We feel like the guy at the circus spinning plates on sticks, trying to keep them from falling. There, Here, here is the unchanged. We want something stable, right? 
something that has got to anchor. Isn't that the promises of God? We have these promises as an anchor of the soul in the midst of the storms so that we can be unchanging. And what about truthfulness? Now, the Holy Spirit has moved in, and he is called, what, the Spirit of Truth. Didn't it say that if we look to him, he will lead us into all truth and show us things to come? He told the disciples that you want to be a partaker of the divine nature. Realize what you already got. Because you've already got it. It's a matter of being conscious about it. For this reason also, applying all diligence. Diligence, spudazzo, means that you make an honest effort to do it. You have a zeal about it. And you try to do it quickly. In your faith, starting point, big circle. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Right at the heart of it. It's interesting how ethics, moral excellence, gets left aside in a, in a decadent culture. And yet it says, in your faith, in your belief in God, in your belief in His standards and who sets the standards, what do you supply? Moral excellence. Virtue is what we would call it. And in your virtue, knowledge. He actually puts that before, before um, morality. Or after morality. Why? Maybe we inherently know what's right and wrong. Sounds like something God would put inside of us. Right? But then you're going to grow. Because like Paul did, he started off as a, as a sinner and in the church, as an apostle, became a bigger sinner. Why? Because he found out all the other places that he was messed up. And it says, in your knowledge... Self-control. That's part of growing up, right? We find out what we need to do to be godly. Self-control. And your self-control, perseverance. Stick with it. And your perseverance, godliness. See, it's not something that comes automatically. You see this sequence of events? These are concentric circles drawing us to a central target. That's what they are. Because in the sphere of, if we went through the through the Greek, it's the date of the sphere, in the sphere of, in the sphere of, in the sphere of. So you start out here within your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. So he's leaving it what to us? We've got to go get it, is what he's saying. Your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. And your godliness, brotherly kindness. And for some reason, they didn't translate it brotherly love. It's Philadelphos, the word in there. Brotherly love. And in your brotherly love, <coughs> hey, agape. The love is literally what it says in the Greek. Which has got to be, in the context, the love for God. That's your target. You want to love him. Dobson wrote a book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. Other people have written several books. When he doesn't make sense. When you don't understand what he's up to. you got to trust him. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short sighted. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore brethren. Be all the more diligent. Here's the word again. To make certain about his calling and choosing you. 
Do you know about his calling and his election? Do you know why you were why you were selected, so to speak? Do you know why you're in the hand of God and no no power in heaven on earth or under the earth can remove you from that? For as long as you practice these things, you won't stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Hey, we got an entrance in into the kingdom, right? We're in a spiritual kingdom now because we're his kids, because we are royalty, because we are awaiting the calling of the bride of Christ, that we will be with him forever. And he says, you got what you need now. Well, how many times do we pray, Lord, would you provide? Would you provide? Would you provide? And why don't we thank him for the stuff he already has? Because he has already provided everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We cannot thank you enough for what you have again shown us through your word. That you have provided all we need for life and godliness already. And it is not what the world wants us to believe. It's about our notoriety, our fortune, our power, our pleasure. It's not about any of those things. It's all about you. So, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we would remember that. And the Holy Spirit would bring it to mind as we go through life this week. We pray for opportunities to be your witnesses as we go across the street and around the world. And, Father, we pray that you continue to guide us in everything. Show us what to do and what not to do, that your name might be glorified. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.